Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Paul Offit. He's a doctor, a director of the Vaccine Education Center. He's also a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Uh, he's also a Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's an expert internationally recognized in the fields of virology and immunology. And we're going to talk about uh, you know, the race for uh, COVID-19 vaccines. So, Paul, thanks for coming. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. Obviously, it's a you know topic of worldwide significance. Everyone uh, says there's a big race on um, in the media. You know, I hear various scientific uh, people saying it's going to take many, many years, and yet uh, everyone seems to have the hope that it'll be soon. What's what's your first your overall perspective of the situation? Well, it's unprecedented. I mean, never has a vaccine development program received this much international interest. So, although typically you know, vaccine research and development program takes 15 to 20 years. Um, this one, I think, reasonably will take only about a year and a half from actually having the strain to having a commercial product. The reason that's true is that you have more than 80 companies across the globe that are interested in making the vaccine. You have billions and billions of dollars that have been poured into this by the World Health Organization, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, the Health and Human Services um, you have this, the unfortunately named warp speed program, which um, I'm sure scientists didn't name, but it's, you know, now, you know, that you're basically mass producing the vaccines at risk. You're making millions of doses without knowing whether the vaccine is safe or without knowing whether it's effective, which is really what we did back in 1955 with the polio vaccine program. And, um, you know, it's going to be an, a, a um, probably, probably a less extensive licensure process. These, these, this is going to be released through the emergency use authorization. So the FDA, I think, has to some extent a lighter touch here. But I would say this. I think as long as we do phase three trials, as long as we do the phase three trials that the NIH active group is asking us to do, which is to say 30,000 people in a prospective placebo-controlled trial, 20,000 vaccinees, 10,000 placebo recipients, as long as we do that, then there's a catchment for all of this rushing. Okay, so quick question here. Phase three, you're saying the cohort would be 30,000 people, 20,000 unvaccinated, 10,000 not, um, and then they would be deliberately exposed to COVID to see if they um, develop antibodies or if they get sick? It would just be done in, in, in nature. In other words, you would hope that you would pick spots where the virus is circulating so that there would be a reasonable number of people in the, in the placebo group that got infected or got sick. Um, but there's not, it's not, these aren't human challenge studies. These are just sort of natural challenge studies. Well, I mean, based on the scale of the problem and the trillions of loss, why not ask for and get a special ethics uh, cutout for humans to get these vaccines or not and to be deliberately exposed to a very likely exposure of COVID? That would make the data a lot more robust. Yes, uh, you know, there would be 30,000 people that would have to give their consent, but I bet you if they were paid, uh, they would. 
It's, it's not as easy as it sounds. I, th I think ethics is not really the issue. I think ethicists have generally weighed in on this and said, you know, basically since this virus is killing 500 to 1,000 people a day, it would be reasonable for people to volunteer under consent to, uh, to be experimentally inoculated with SARS-CoV-2. It's, it's not that easy. What, what you have to do, first of all, is you have to get the dose right. You have to try and mimic the natural situation. And nothing mimics like the, the natural situation like the natural situation. So if there's a fairly high um, just uh, infection rate in the wild, if you will, um, then sometimes that's easier because to, you have to get the dose right. Also, remember, the virus that you're giving is virus that you've experimentally grown up in the laboratory. And you always run the risk of, you know, having um, changes in that virus that are distinct from that which is occurring in the wild. So in many ways, I don't think it's any faster actually to do human challenge studies. It's probably going to be just as fast to do this in the wild. And, you know, initially we thought um, this is not going to uh, be easy in the summer months because the, these kinds of respiratory viruses spread by small droplets disappear in the summer months, but that's not true of this virus. This virus is raging in the United States in the summer. So in many ways, this may not, these may not be hard uh, studies to do. Well, the, so what would the study look like then? You, you would vaccinate 20,000 people and then pretend to vaccinate or give a, a, du, a dud to 10,000 people and then say, all right, go home and we'll, we'll have you report how you feel over the next two weeks or like, how would it work? Yeah, exactly that, except not two weeks, probably more like several months. And um, you, you do work against yourself at some level because you want to make sure that people you know, wash their hands, wear masks, maintain social distancing. So in some ways, you're, you're going to be advising your placebo group not to get sick, knowing that really you at some level want them to get infected, want them to get sick so that you can make statements about efficacy. But I think with the kind of attack rate that we're getting, not only in this country, but also in some other places in the world, and the world is going to be the site where these uh, trials are done, I think we probably could generate a reasonable amount of data in, um, in six months or so. Well, if you have a certain size cohort, that means that the statisticians would have to know that is enough people to get a statistically relevant result, which means that they should know the implied uh, infection rate. Right. And so, so I think they do. The, the, hence the 30,000 person trial. I think also remember the Data Safety Monitoring Board will be involved in every one of these trials. And so they'll always know who's gotten the vaccine and who hasn't, who's gotten the placebo. So you'll be able to tell very quickly, one, whether there's a safety problem and two, whether the, the vaccine is clearly effective, in which case, you know, you can stop the trial early. So um, your estimation would be that there'll be maybe approximately, you know, you said there's about 80 companies. Uh, would it be safe to say that there might be at least 20 trials of this scale that go on in the next year or two? Yes. And I think the, the you know, the trials, at least in this country, are going to involve messenger RNA, replication defective uh, human adenoviruses, vectored vaccines, you know, similar to the uh, Merck's Ebola virus vaccine. Um, but what, 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 is, what we're not moving forward with it are, are um, basically uh, strategies with which we have a lot of experience, like an inactivated viral vaccine or a live attenuated viral vaccine or a purified protein viral vaccine. I think we do have one purified protein viral vaccine, which is the Novavax vaccine. I mean, all are geared towards making antibodies, you know, to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, specifically to the receptor binding domain of that spike protein, in the hopes that that'll prevent the virus from binding to cells and infecting cells and therefore prevent disease. But we'll see. Uh, you know, I think, you know, for all the hype that surrounded, you know, each of these very small phase one dose ranging studies, you know, where we, you know, we, we, we handle this, these uh, stories like, you know, that we've been handed the holy grail. Um, you know, we really do have to wait for phase three trials. And I do worry that this administration might be tempted as we move toward, you know, the, uh, the election to sort of reach their 
hand into the warp speed bucket, pull out a couple of vaccines, say, look, you know, these have been tested in thousands of people and it looks like they certainly are safe. And we have these great immune responses. And so we're really sure that this is going to be protect, going to be protective. This is going to be the biggest breakthrough in the history of medicine. I, I do worry about that because, as you know, the, um, the, it's, it's often true that um, it's hard to get an immunological correlative protection. So just because you have a good neutralizing antibody response in your circulation, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be protected, which is why you have to do efficacy trials. So where are the trials happening? Are they happening mostly in the U.S.? And, you know, I mean, you talk about this, this administration, this country, but what about all the other countries in the world? Why aren't any of them putting themselves forth as big leaders or proponents of uh, making a vaccine, leading the charge? Well, they are. I mean, China certainly is, and Beijing, the Beijing Research Institute is, is moving forward. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the UK group, the Jenner Institute at the University of Oxford, is moving forward with, forward with their replication defective uh, simian adenovirus. So there are, are other countries that are moving forward. But I think China is working on it, also an inactivated vaccine, as well as a replication defective human adenovirus 5 vector. Um, Cogenics is a company that's working with Serum Institute of India to make a live attenuated viral vaccine. So, you know, all strategies that have ever been used before to make a vaccine are being made somewhere in the world. And, um, you know, certainly these novel strategies are being made not only in the United States, but elsewhere in the world. So that, that's why that's what makes this so unique and why we probably could get a vaccine fairly. Are the novel strategies being used in the U.S. and the common tried and true ones not or just very little or, you know, or is worldwide are mostly novel strategies being used? I think worldwide, mostly novel strategies are being used. I mean, here, the warp speed vaccines are novel strategies vaccines, mRNA by Moderna or Pfizer. Um, the, the vesicular stomatitis virus vectored uh, vaccine, which is similar to the Ebola vaccine that, that is Merck's product. Um, and then you have J&J's product, which is replication-defective adenovirus 26. And um, so the, uh, you know, the, the, the products here tend to be these, uh, you know, these um, novel strategies. But why, if the goal is to make something that works, why not include a healthy, you know, pun intended dose of uh, tried and true strategies? Why focus mostly on novel things, which could add to the complexity and make it less likely that uh, you get a breakthrough? Yeah, I, th I think that's happening. I, I mean, the, the initial um, uh, contracts that were signed for warp speed were these, these novel strategies because they're the fastest to make. They're basically plug and play vaccines, meaning you know the, gene, the, the protein you're interested in. It's the spike protein. You know the gene that, that defines that spike protein. So it's very easy to plug that gene into messenger RNA, into DNA, into replication defective of viruses, whether simian or human. So, the, and, and they're very easy to scale up. So they're easy to make and easy to scale up. And so they're the fastest. That doesn't, you're right. That doesn't certainly necessarily mean they're the best. And I think that, that we will, these aren't, this isn't going to be the end of it in the United States. I think we are going to be contracting with other com companies like Novavax, which is making um, the purified protein vaccine. And I think as, as, as we move forward, I suspect we're also going to uh, be looking at, at an inactivated vaccine. So what are the parameters on success? How efficacious does it need to be? How long should it confer immunity? Well, you'd, you'd certainly like to have protection against moderate to severe disease in the 70 to 75% range. I mean, it's, I think it, it's reasonable to expect that, the, uh, that you will have short-lived and incomplete protection. By short-lived, I mean it might only last a year or two. By incomplete, I mean protection against moderate to severe disease, but not necessarily mild disease associated with infection. Um, that would be reasonable enough. I think that would 
help to get us out of this? If you had, I mean, there's a formula, as you know, for, for figuring out what percentage of the population needs to be immunized. It's, it's based on two facts. One is the contagiousness of the virus, and two is the effectiveness of the vaccine. If you had a vaccine that was 75% effective, you'd probably need to vaccinate about two-thirds of the American population to stop spread. Okay, so those are the, the parameters. I, I had thought that, um, I don't know if it was the FDA or CDC was only looking for like 50% efficacy. Were they just trying to get something on the board or what's typical? Yeah, I think that when the NIH Active Group, which was put together by Francis Collins to try and help to facilitate or accelerate the development of a vaccine, when they were initially coming together with their sort of statistical model, they sort of set a baseline efficacy, and that baseline was 50%. Somehow that got picked up at the media as that's what, what we were aiming for. No, I think that we, we just would aim for nothing less than that. I, I don't see why we can't have a vaccine that's about 75% effective. That's what uh, Dr. Fauci said, and I think, I think he's right. What do you think is going to happen with uh, with flu coming? I don't know. If, I mean, it seems like flu surveillance is it, even itself on the back burner. Do you think there might be, I don't know, is anyone accounting for the possibility of co-infection with flu and complications because of that? Sure. I mean, in many ways last year, we were lucky if there's anything one can say about this that's lucky. I mean, influenza last year in the United States caused more than 50 million cases, caused about 780,000 hospitalizations, and caused about 60,000 people to die. And that, that's not trivial. Somehow that gets just grandfathered in. I mean, I was on a call earlier today out of KQED in, in uh, California, and one of the questioners said, you know, just the common flu, the routine flu. I mean, you know, flu, flu can kill. And, and as the virus started to come into this country, our first death was at the beginning of March, and then it started to take off. I mean, that's when flu was starting to taper off. This year coming up, I mean, if, if SARS-CoV-2 continues to do what it was doing last year and flu does what it does every year, which is cause disease, you know, in the winter months, you could see these, these infections happening at the same time which I think could very easily overwhelm the healthcare system. And then the point that you brought up is a good one. You know, will we also face the, the, what would be an unusual co-infection, which could present in an odd way? Well, perhaps it could be the opposite. Perhaps um, people that get uh, sick with flu for some will somehow be protected from SARS, cov 2 and uh, the opposite. I mean, it seems like for some reason, uh, you know, infecting parasites and other organisms, uh, I guess, treat us like a, a kombucha. You know, they... They want to set up shop and push out everything else. So there might be a beneficial effect somehow that way. I don't know. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, I mean, the, the phenomenon of paraimmunity, nonspecific immunity, it's true. I mean, if, if, for example, the, probably the most data on this are with uh, BCG, the tuberculosis vaccine, is that when you give the tuberculosis vaccine, you induce uh, interferon, which can interfere with, which is where it got its name, interfere with the capacity of viruses to infect. There was some data for this also with measles-containing vaccine and with the oral polio vaccine. So, um, you know, Robert Gallo has talked about this a lot and has written about it in the, in the New York Times is sort of, why don't we do this? Why don't we look for paraimmunity? And in fact, in Southampton and the United Kingdom, um, they're giving interferon as a treatment for, for just that reason, this sort of nonspecific effect that, that when you are responding to influenza, you also make an interferon response, which can interfere with other viral infections. So that matter, I guess we'll see. So you mentioned several times there's a lot of novel methods for vaccine and you know you ran over them really quickly i'm only barely familiar with them can you go into a few of the novel mechanisms and how they work sure so they the, the might one work that, 
Yes, yeah, sure. Um, the one that, that probably is that most people hear about is so-called messenger RNA. So what you do is you you basically take the, the messenger RNA that, that is responsible for coding for the coronavirus spike protein. You put it in this complex lipid delivery system. You inoculate it into the arm, and then that, that, uh, that, that messenger RNA is taken up into the muscle, where it is then translated to the protein, the coronavirus spike protein, and then you make an immune response to that protein. So basically, you make the coronavirus spike protein, and then you make an antibody response to that protein. The same thing's true for the DNA strategy, where you inoculate with DNA that codes for that uh, protein, but now the DNA first has to be transcribed to messenger RNA, then it has to be translated to that protein, the spike protein, so it's sort of a step away. Then you have these so-called replication-deficient adenoviruses. So adenoviruses, as you know, is the cause of colds as well as a variety of, of other symptoms. They make it replication-defective so it can't reproduce itself. It can't cause disease, the, the adenovirus itself. But it's genetically engineered so it can make this one protein you're interested in, again, the spike protein. So the virus enters the cell, makes that protein, but doesn't reproduce itself. The, 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 the issue with that is you have to give a lot of virus particles for a virus that's not reproducing itself, some, somewhere in the order of 50 billion virus particles. And when you do those things, you, you get side effects like fever, headache, chills, uh, muscle aches, so, which is also true with the mRNA vaccines as well. So, so those, are, those are basically the replication deficient strategies. And then there's the so-called vectored vaccine strategy where you take a virus that, that's not a human pathogen and although it reproduces itself, it's, it's kind of an orphan virus. It doesn't cause disease. It's like vesicular stomatitis virus, which is how the Ebola virus vaccine is made. And then you clone into that or, or uh, uh, you know, transfect that or, or genetically engineer that more accurately with, um, you know, with the gene that codes for the, the spike protein. And then you give that virus. And that, that's the that way the Ebola vaccine was made. So those are all novel strategies with which we have little experience in the United States. And I'm sure there's going to be an enormous learning curve associated with this. So, so you're right. I mean, you have, on the one hand, this elusive, difficult to characterize virus, which has already really surprised people in a lot of ways. I mean, that it causes this so-called multi-inflammatory systemic disease in children, that it rages in the summer months, that it causes a disruption of endothelial cells that line blood vessels and causes basically a vasculitis that can lead to things like COVID toes, you know, which is uh, like frostbite. I mean, these are all surprising findings and we're just getting started. This virus is only seven months old. So you're meeting this, this difficult kind of elusive, surprising virus with vaccine strategies that have never been used before. I mean, I think it's fair to say we're going to learn things over the next two years that uh, we wish we knew now. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of SARS-CoV-2 itself and our current understanding, it appears to be a lot less um, changeable. I don't know. I, I don't know the word for it than flu. I mean, flu. We need vaccine every year because it just changes so much. So, like, what what are some of the good and the bad characteristics of SARS-CoV-2 in regards to a vaccine and you know how efficacious it might be? Right. So, so SARS-CoV-2 is a single-stranded RNA virus. Um, like influenza, like measles, like mumps, like German measles, rubella. Um, and so like all single-stranded RNA viruses, it does mutate with every cycle of replication. These are single-stranded RNA viruses aren't terribly faithful when they reproduce. But the, the issue is not, does this virus mutate? It mutates. Um, measles mutates. The, the question is, does it mutate in a functionally important way? In other words, to become more contagious or less contagious, to become more likely to cause severe disease or less likely to cause severe disease. And then more important, like influenza, does it mutate so much from one year to the next 
that natural infection or immunization one year doesn't protect you the following year. I, I don't think it does that. I, I don't think it's going to mutate away from the vaccine, although I should stop making predictions about this virus because I'm always wrong, but I'm still going to make that prediction and probably be wrong here too. It does seem to be able to have mutated. There's this sort of D641G mutation that seems to have been associated with uh, increased contagiousness. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll see how that plays out, but that does seem to be true. But it doesn't seem to mutate to become more or less virulent, more or less likely to cause severe disease. So we'll see how this plays out. But um, it's, I think it's going to end up being more like measles than flu. Well, okay, so you say it's more like measles than flu. Uh, I remember getting the MMR uh, you know, vaccine, and that's supposed to last you years and years and years. So you're saying that it, your prediction may be that uh, we might not need a vaccine to SARS-CoV-2 every year? Yeah, no, I think it, we won't. This virus, this vaccine will not mimic measles vaccine. Measles vaccine is amazing. I mean, you get two doses of measles vaccine, you basically have 97% efficacy for the rest of your life. That's not going to be this. And it's true for all sort of uh, relatively short incubation period uh, respiratory viruses. I mean, I think if you can get protection for a year or two or three, that would be great. Um, you know, you can have protection that's as short as just one year. I mean, there were studies done in the early 1990s with human coronavirus doing challenge trials, showing that of the four serotypes of human coronavirus that circulate every year in this country, if you're infected with one serotype and then a year later challenged with that same serotype, you're generally protected. So that, that's encouraging that at least protection in that study lasted for a year. Um, I, I hope we can get protection for a year with this. We'll see. Worst comes to worst, you would boost the following year. But even if you can just get protection for six months, eight months, nine months, that would go a long way to trying to stop the spread of this virus. Yeah, um, since we, uh, the common cold and other coronaviruses, you know, have been around us for countless numbers of years, uh, I've seen some articles that seem to say that may confer some subset of immunity or some, you know, light immunity because of our exposure to them. Do you think that's possible? There does seem to be a cross-reactivity with T helper cell responses. So there, there may be some advantage to that. Um, still, I think that if we're going to get any sort of long-lived specific immunity, it's going to have to be with a vaccine. I, that's the only way we're going to stop the spread of this. Natural infection is not going to stop the spread of this. I think previous experience with human coronavirus is not going to stop the spread of this. So we, we need a vaccine. We need a safe and effective vaccine. And we need to go through the process the way we've been going through the process the last 70 years, which is to say, do a phase three trial. Richard, I can't tell you how nervous I am about this administration not doing phase three trials because let's suppose the following happens. Let's suppose that the UK group um, does a, a very small phase three trial, not the kind of trial we would normally do in this country, and then they put it out in the UK market. I mean, would we want to do the same thing here, accepting really a, a lesser um, a bar for, for what we would normally do? And that's what worries me. It worries some of the companies, too, that uh, that, that may play out that way. Well, uh, phase three trials, uh, I mean, have, have any companies finished phase two? Like, what does phase two look like? And, you know, when do you think the first phase three will begin from any company. Phase three trials have already begun for starting oh, good. months. Excellent. So I think phase of all the phases of, of a typical vaccine program, I think phase one trials have tended to be much smaller than are typically done. Um, phase two trials were largely getting skipped. I mean, you look at that New England Journal of Medicine paper with the Moderna vaccine. I mean, that was basically a study of 15 people who got the 100 microgram dose. They've, they're going to start at the end now, if not uh, the end of this month. They're phase three trial. Um, and same with a variety of other com companies. I mean, if, if anything is a, is a um, 
has been sacrificed here. It's the phase two trial, which is to say you do hundreds of people to make sure that your vaccine is consistently safe and consistently immunogenic. So you can at least say it doesn't have a common side effect problem and that, it, that you can you expect when you go to phase three that it's going to be consistently immunogenic. We'll see. It's interesting that when they did a poll recently, both ABC and, and another group did a poll, they asked, you know, people, would they get a COVID-19 vaccine? And, you know, the New York Times wrote an article of this. I, this was, I was on CNN yesterday talking with uh, Brian Todd about this and Wolf Blitzer's program. Um, you know, two thirds of people said between 50 percent and two thirds of people said that would you get a COVID-19 vaccine? And they said, yes, that's pretty amazing. Actually, they tried to spin this as, you know, look, a third, a third of the population is not going to get the vaccine. I think the fact that two thirds of the population would get a theoretical unknown vaccine for which you have no data against the virus, which has been at best elusive. I think it's pretty amazing. I mean, I think I would have answered no to that question. I want to see the data first. Well, I mean, unfortunately, it's become politicized. So any answer anyone gives could be twisted to make them look bad. So, I mean, who knows? You know, you could, I could say, well, the media has done such a good job of instilling fear, right or wrong, that it's no surprise that many people want it. Or I could say, uh, I mean, all kinds of things. So I understand, but I just don't know what to do with that, with that data point, you know. Um, I did want to ask you a question. So how do vaccines go wrong? Like, you, you know, you keep talking about, you hope, you hope, you hope, and you hope that things are done in the right way. What does the wrong way look like? What happens if uh, there's a failure? Well, I think when you do a phase three trial, what you do is mitigate risk. You, you, you can say, look, I vaccinated 20,000 people. I can say there's not an uncommon side effect. Um, but I, I don't know whether there's a rare side effect. 20,000 people isn't 20 million people. So you, you've mitigated the risk to some extent. You can do an efficacy trial that will tell you that it's effective at a certain level of, of efficacy. It's say 70, 75%, but you don't know for how long. That you're only going to find out afterwards. So I think that the goal is to manage expectations, to make sure that when that the vaccine rolls out, that people know that it may have a rare side effect you don't know about. It may be have an efficacy that's shorter lived than you had hoped. And, you know, it, it, I mean, this happens all the time with medical products. You know, you never really know until you put it in lots of people. Maurice Hilleman, who I think was the father of modern vaccines, having either done the primary research or development on nine of the 14 vaccines we currently use today, he said it best, quote, I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. That's always true. And, and so, I mean, look, the dengue vaccine was, was only found to be a, uh, uh, to increase uh, the, your risk when you then were confronted with natural infection, so-called antibody-dependent enhancement. Um, when it was in thousands of people um, after it was already licensed and, you know, accounted for deaths in some children. The um, rotor shield vaccine, you know, was, was, was found to be safe pre-licensure, was found to cause interception post-licensure. The 1976 swine flu vaccine was found to be a rare cause of Guillain-Barre syndrome. I mean, you, you know, you learn as you go, and invariably there is a cost to that knowledge. Hmm. Um, you know, and then also today we have, I guess, what's called the anti-vaxxer movement. So I'm sure that'll have its say in this, regardless of the outcome. But, oh, you, uh, can, you can count on it. I mean, you know, this, this is going to be a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine that will be designed to prevent SARS-CoV-2 and not everything else that happens in life. They will be right there with, you know, got a vaccine, two days later had a stroke, had a heart attack, had first symptoms of multiple sclerosis, now is di diagnosed with diabetes, whatever it is. They'll be there all over the news and social media with those stories. But, you know, there's no convincing them. They're conspiracy theorists. I mean, what I worry about are the people who, or in any sense influenced by them. And, you know, I think you should be skeptical of asked about anything you put in your body, including vaccines. I just don't think you should be cynical, which is what this group is. Well, uh, how do you weigh, 
the benefits versus the cost of a vaccine, the upside versus the downside. I mean, what's that calculus look like? I know it depends on everything, but you know, what's like uh, what's a common calculus for vaccines in the past or or this one that's coming? Well, it's always has to be weighed against the benefit. You know, I mean, when um, you know this is a virus that's killing five hundred to a thousand people a day, that's the benefit. So there's an enormous benefit. Um, but, you know, like any medical product, vaccines are not risk-free. And so, you know, there's always a certain amount of uncertainty. You try and lessen that uncertainty in the phase three trial, but you don't eliminate it. And, and you just have to make sure that there are systems in place to pick up problems when they occur. And you have to make sure that you, you get the public understands what the what vaccines, this particular vaccine or these vaccines can and, 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 don't, and may not be able to do. You, you know, you just have to manage those expectations. But I think people expect breakthroughs without a cost. And that's historically, in the history of medical breakthroughs, never been true. What about antivirals? Why just vaccines? Why not antivirals? Why is there not much talk about them? Well, I mean, first of all, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, I'm at the University of Pennsylvania. We're supposed to give at least one Ben Franklin quote in every talk we give. Um, You know, it's Mm -hmm. much better to prevent something than treat it. And, you know, antivirals, I think, have a value as long as you're catching the the disease at a a time when viral replication is the most important part of pathogenesis, which is really very early in the infection. Usually people aren't identified that early, and so you're treating them later, which is why antivirals aren't generally wonder drugs. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, remdesivir was shown in, in an NIH trial to decrease your length of time of infection from 15 days to 11 days. So that's some value, but it didn't really uh, save your life. There was no evidence that you were less likely to die with remdesivir than not, uh, probably because at the time that it's given, you were a little too far along and viral replication wasn't as important of the part of pathogenesis as your immune response was. So that's the problem with antivirals. So what, what are some possible scenarios over the next uh, six months and the next year? What do you think may be likely to happen? I think early next year, there will be one or two or more vaccines that will roll out. Um, I think that they'll roll out relatively slowly because if you're talking about trying to vaccinate just the high risk groups, you know, the groups, uh, you know, specifically people who work in healthcare, um, African-Americans, people who are uh, elderly, especially with comorbidities, people who work in nursing homes, meatpacking plants, grocery stores, pharmacies. Um, it's prob- these are probably going to be two-dose vaccines separated by one or two months. And if you just take the high-risk groups, according to the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, that's probably about 120 million people with a two-dose vaccine. So you're talking about 240 doses of vaccine. That's not all going to be made at once. And I think it's going to just have to you know, get out there in, in non-traditional sources, like it, may, can't, the, the, it can't just be in the medical home. It can't just be in a doctor's office. I don't think you're going to be able to do that. So it has to be like flu vaccine in some other ways, you know, like, like pharmacies or hospitals. I mean, I get my flu vaccine every year in the hospital. And, and, um, and we'll see. I do worry about this a little bit, too. I mean, this is, this is an administrative um, initiative, which is to say this is the same administration that hasn't been great about providing face masks or PPEs, that hasn't been great about testing and contact tracing, that hasn't been great about even just defining for the public just what hygienic measures need to be done until more recently. And um, this is the same administration that's going to be um, charged with uh, implementing and distributing this vaccine. And, you know, you do worry about it. It's, it's, not, a, it's not an easy thing to do, especially now. Um, do you think that there's going to be a, I don't know, a, a vaccine requirement, you know, a passport that people are going to need to be vaccinated in order to be able to do things? Or uh, do you think it's going to be first provided to uh, the high-risk groups? 
I think it'll first be provided to high-risk groups. I think the notion of a passport is a little silly because it, it would make the the false claim that just because you've gotten a vaccine means that you're protected. If you've gotten a vaccine, that means, that means you're more likely to be protected, but you're not necessarily protected. Um, and I think the same with mandates. I don't think you could mandate this vaccine coming out. First of all, I don't think you, you would be able to. Um, you're not going to have enough vaccine as it is. And um, you know, you, you, you're really going to learn as you go with these early vaccines. So I think that's another reason you shouldn't mandate. Well, I mean, you know, for instance, Bill Gates has made a public statement saying, you know, the world will not return to normal unless uh, most of the world or maybe all the world's vaccinated. So that seems to, it does seem to say that uh, this will be different from other vaccines and that uh, it may be pressure to, for everyone to have it regardless and to rely upon it as now being safe once you've had it. Well, he's right. I mean, I think the, the world will only return to normal when a critical number of people get vaccinated. I don't, I don't think it's going to have to be everybody. I think we can stop spread without having everybody vaccinated, as we do with all vaccines. Remember, some people can't be vaccinated um, because they're immune suppressed or whatever reason. So what do you think will happen if um, more than one vaccine comes out at the same time? What kind of competition or interplay will there be? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think it may depend on sort of to what degree different vaccines are effective against different subsets of people. I mean, hopefully these vaccine trials will include all those subsets who are likely to be uh, in the priority group when it rolls out. And you may find that one vaccine or another works better in different populations. And so we'll, we'll see that. Um, and then we'll just see what happens when it rolls out. It's, I think we're going to learn a lot sort of post-approval as to how effective these really are, how long-lasting they are, how safe they are. I think, you know, you're going to learn more when millions and millions of doses are out there. Yeah, you spoke earlier, you know, we're just about out of time, but you spoke earlier about um, flu and the, the, um, the number of hospitalizations, the number of cases, uh, you know, the amount of death, et cetera. But this, the response to this, I guess a lot of it is because it's novel, uh, is, you know, far far higher than it was to flu than far higher it's been to other other conditions what how do you think people are going to treat and react to SARS-CoV-2 in the future are they going to get used to it and it'll become you know part of life and there won't be uh you know such concern over it or like how do you think this is going to play out mentally and uh you know how how countries operate yeah, I think I think we're probably going to get to a point where there's a, there's there's a certain number of cases that are reported per day, or a certain number of deaths that are reported per day or per week or per month that is low enough that we then feel comfortable again. I mean, it's interesting how we're perfectly comfortable with flu, which you know killed sixty thousand people in America last year, and um, yet somehow that's all grandfathered in. You know, the I mean, this this virus has done more than twice that, but you know, it's not like out of the range. It's not like logarithmically different. It's, they're, they're both killers. I, it'll be interesting to see what happens this year when we, no doubt, will still be wearing masks as we enter this winter and still be trying to social distance. And, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens to the instance of flu this year. Yeah. Well, very good. Paul, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and your thoughts? Um, what is the best way? I, I guess, I mean, I have a Twitter site, which I don't really do all that much. It's called at Paul Offit. Um, I do have a Facebook page, which, you know, gives you a chance to tell me how much you don't like me. Um, there's that. And, um, otherwise, I think that's better. I mean, I do write books. So I wrote a book recently called Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. So actually, I have to, it's funny, I have to be on CNN um, at five with Wolf Blitzer. And, you know, the, I'm going to be the guy on CNN who doesn't prominently display his book behind him. Okay, just so you know, that's me. Because everybody else does that. Do you notice that? Well, I'll give Wolf a, a hug for me. I'm just kidding. He doesn't even know who I am, but that's really cool. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Well, Paul, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. You know, with the places like CNN that want to interview you, uh, thanks for, for hanging out with me too. And I, I appreciate you being here. 
Sure, well, I know you and like you. I mean, I don't know Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> well, hopefully he'll be friendly to you too. So, All right, I guess we'll see. All right, Richard, take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.